0: Today's sponsor is Alley We all know how important moms are for kids. But did you know that one of the biggest influences on a girl's confidence and self-esteem is her dad? So if her dad says she's smart or fearless at sports or she can do anything she puts her mind to, she believes him maybe more than her mom? I don't know. The praise and confidence a girl gets from her dad stays with her for life. There's a startup out of L.A. that is focused on just that started by a mom it's called alley oop and it provides a collection of fun challenges and activities that are specifically designed for a dad and daughter to do together as a team there are no materials required and you can access all the challenges virtually through the alley oop app which you can download from the app store just search for alley oop a-l-l-e-y it's early access only right now, but if you use the code BOOKMOM, capital B for book, capital M for mom, book mom, all one word, upon sign-in, your favorite dads and daughters can check it out for free. Zena Arafat is the debut author of You Exist Too Much, a novel. I had the great pleasure of interviewing Zena through the Center for Fiction during part of their Inside and Out 2020. Pride event series, which was fantastic. Zaina is a Palestinian-American writer, teacher, and editor. Her stories and essays have appeared in publications including the New York Times, Granta, The Believer, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, Vice, and... Many others. Her work has been an anticipated book for June of 2020 by O oh, The Oprah Magazine, Elle, Lit Hub, and so many others. She has an MA in International Affairs from Columbia University and an MFA from Iowa. She has taught writing at the University of Iowa, the School of the New York Times, the International Writing Program, and Sackett Street Writers, as well as abroad in Jordan, Egypt, and Eritrea, where she taught creative writing as part of the U.S. State Department International Writing Program Delegation. She's also led workers for Dreamers and DACA recipients through the Writers Guild Initiative. As an editor, she also curated a portfolio of prose and poetry in response to the travel ban and a Q&A series with Muslim writers for The Margins. She's also served as managing editor of Vine Pear, the largest online publication on wine news and culture. Hi, Zaina. Hi. Welcome <laughs> to be here. Me too. How fun to <laughs> virtually be talking to you. <laughs> I wish it was in real life, but you know, yeah, such is life these days. Well, congratulations on You Exist Too Much. I know this is my advanced copy, but this awesome cover for everybody watching. Thank Um, you. Your debut novel, June 9th, it just came out. How does it feel to have a book out in the world, especially
2: now? It's exhilarating, to be honest. Of course, you know, I couldn't have predicted the circumstances, the global circumstances that the book, the world that the book would be arriving into. But, you know, as a Palestinian, I feel as though, you know, resistance is such a part of my experience and my background but it just sort of felt kind of right to be putting a book that's has Palestinian characters in it out into the world at this time. So that's, that's been nice, but yeah, it's been, it's been exhilarating and exciting and, you know, everything really (laughs) we were were chatting before this
0: started about that you know maybe there are some perks to doing a whole virtual book tour you get to save a lot of exhaustion from traveling all over the world despite the disappointment of not being able to be in those places
2: oh yes, absolutely yeah and it's great to have this virtual platform because you can connect with people and readers and writers that are everywhere in the world so that's really the plus side i think yeah so let's let's back up to your
0: book a little bit. I know you're going to read a little bit to introduce everybody to your beautiful, beautiful writing. And as you know, I've picked this as like some of my top books in the Good Morning America article and and all the rest. And I think your book is fantastic. And so read
2: and give them a little preview. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you so much for all of that support. It's it's meant a lot to me. And I'm going to read, So yeah, I'm going to read from, it's cool because it shines when you put these little amazing things, these stripes. I'm going to read from the very opening of the book, just a few pages. So no setup needed because these are the opening pages. In Bethlehem, when I was 12, men in airy white gowns sat at a three-legged table outside the church of the nativity, They ran prayer beads through their fingers and sipped mint tea in gold rimmed cups shaped like hourglasses, steam floating off the surface and up into the bright blue sky. I walked past them with my mother and my uncle as we wandered through the holy city. One of the men called out, Haram. Forbidden. For the especially devout among us, it's Haram to eat meat unless the animal has been killed in a specific way, Haram to drink alcohol. Haram for a pubescent girl to expose her legs in a biblical city. It occurred to me then that I wasn't a flat-chested kid anymore, that curves had begun to appear along the length of me. I was no longer indistinguishable from a boy child. What should we do, I asked my mother. I felt a pulsing lump take shape in my throat as I noticed her jaw extended and temples shimmering. My great-grandparents' house was where we were staying and where all of my clothes were. 36 miles and three checkpoints away. I should have had more sense than to dress in such a way when we were visiting the birthplace of a prophet, albeit not our own. My mother had, and still has, a native's knowledge. She knows the rules instinctively in that part of the world, and I only ever learned them by accident. Basita, said my uncle, it's okay. We approached the main door of the church and the men hissed again. My uncle ran the tips of his fingers across his mustache, then looked to my mother and me. Come, he said, I have an idea. We followed him into a gift shop just off Manjur Square. He dropped a few coins on the counter, then asked the shopkeeper if we could use his bathroom. My mother grabbed a Kit Kat off the shelf and tore it open, breaking apart two sticks without a second thought. My uncle dropped three more coins on the counter. The man pointed toward the back. My uncle thanked him and led the way. His master plan was that he would trade me his trousers for my Roxy surfer shorts. He went into the bathroom first and I could hear sounds of fumbling, his belt jangling as it hit the floor. He opened the door slightly and handed his pants to my mother so she could administer the swap. She then stood in front of me while I took off my shorts. Yalla, she said, her most frequently used word, hurry. I pulled on the pair of pants. They sagged on me. I had to tighten the belt buckle all the way up to the last hole and then roll the waist so that they wouldn't fall off, leaving me even more exposed than I had been before. I stepped out of the bathroom and looked at my uncle. I examined my new curves against his pasty legs, gangly and covered in in sporadic patches of hair, my shorts tight against his thighs. It occurred to me in that moment to question why, as a man, his bare legs were somehow less troubling than mine. It was a double standard, a shame I had simply accepted until then. In acquiring my gender, I had become offensive. But as I stood in front of him, an unexpected pride began to swell inside me. I liked the way his trousers made me feel, like I could get attention from boys, from girls. I felt, for once, seen. Inti walad are you a boy or a girl? A security guard at the Intercontinental Hotel in Amman, Jordan, had once asked my cousin Noor this question when deciding whether to lead her into the curtain-shrouded women's check for an intimate pat-down before she could enter the lobby. Binat, Noor had responded, girl. She'd been insulted by the question, the uncertainty it revealed. But not me. Not that day. Wearing my uncle's baggy trousers, I enjoyed occupying blurred lines. Ambiguity was an unsettling yet exhilarating space. I'll stop there. Thank you. <laughs> Beautiful.
0: So I have to say, when I first started reading this, I kept flipping to the cover and I was like, wait, is this a memoir or is this a novel? Is is this actually what happened to her or not? I, not that you have to go into every detail, but in general, how did you come up with the idea for this book and was it in some way
2: autobiographical? So the elements of the book that are in fact autobiographical are the protagonist's identity markers. She's Palestinian-American. I am too. She is queer. She's bisexual. I am too. And a one of the first, I guess, reasons for wanting to create this book was to see those identities reflected on the page, because I hadn't encountered a lot of literature with, you know, bicultural, bisexual characters. And, you know, the other sort of, all of the stories within the book are, you know, fictional, but those identity markers derive from my own life. And so, yeah, did did you also ask where the idea came from? Is that, or did I just imagine that?
0: I think I asked it. I don't know. I, I, I jumbled a bunch of questions into one. So, Zena, where did you come up with the idea for
2: this book? So the I mean, so the book really began with a question pertaining to unattainability and why it is that things that are off in the distance could be more appealing than something that you had right in front of you. And I tried to imagine what kind of person would set their sights on on something unattainable. And why they might do that. And I initially kind of located that question in, in love. And the character setting her sights on people, primarily women, that she can't, that are unattainable for various reasons. And in sort of circling around that question and drawing those storylines, I tapped into a sort of larger unattainability both in the context of her relationship with her mother and her mother as a force in her life who is large, very unattainable insofar as she's withholding and also kind of from a different world because she's an immigrant and the daughter is first generation. And then also a larger, more political, cultural element of Palestinianness and being part of a community where your existence is hasn't really hasn't been validated because Palestinians don't have statehood, they don't have the right to self-determination. So there were these multiple levels of unattainability. And you know, it was basically the process of writing was very circular, where I just began in one circle and then moved to another circle and found connections between them. So so yeah.
0: <laughs> I found one of the first interactions between the mom and the main character who goes unnamed, but the main character, so I'm not going to say you, but if I do, sure. you know, you me around. The main character in her mother, she was afraid given the mother's sort of lack of acceptance of her lifestyle, what she imagined would be a lack of acceptance. She hadn't told her mother that she had a serious girlfriend with whom she was living and that she was in love and wanted to spend her life with someone and all the rest. And of course, the girlfriend was not happy about that, especially after she's pretending that, you know, her boyfriend is off on a business trip all the time. Anyway, then the mother comes and they have a meal at a restaurant. And so the main character gently asks like, well, you know, if I were to marry a woman, how would you feel? And the mother's like, I would be very upset. And it becomes a whole big explosive thing where the mother runs out and the two women are left sitting there. And it's like a whole thing. So just tell me a little more about that moment, because I feel like it's, probably something that a lot of people have gone through in any similar, for this reason, for other reasons, when they're afraid that their partner won't be accepted by their parents in some way, which is a very common (laughs)
2: occurrence. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think that one. there are many ways to sort of look at the trajectory of the book, but for me, this entire book is about this character coming out to her mother. (laughs) And that moment... Of you know, going to dinner with the girlfriend and the mother, and like deceiving the mother into thinking that the girlfriend is just a friend, is something that, in the context of the book, sort of sets. I wanted to, to to show what the stakes were, to show the resistance that this character was facing when it came to gaining acceptance from her mother, and you know, on a personal level, of course, you know there is especially given my cultural and religious background, I mean, like gaining that acceptance is and remains a journey. (laughs) And there are many ways that parents react to it, at least in my experience of friends and, you know, members of my community. And I, I wrote it in such a way that would allow for this journey to sort of persist where, you know, the mother remains in the narrator's life. The narrator is really close to her and wants her approval and wants her love. And how does she go about being true to herself and, you know, being honest and authentic and gaining that approval and love, you know, and can she, are these things compatible? So that was a question that (laughs) drives that narrative. Yeah.
0: You also had this theme of eating disorders that ran through the narrative as well. And that's actually where the protagonist and her girlfriend at the opening had met and it keeps coming up over and over again. Tell me about the decision to make that one of the central parts of the book as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So by the way, I close my eyes sometimes when I talk. (laughs) Don't be alarmed. So I the eating disorder component speaks to appetite, essentially, because this book, in many ways, the character struggles with or feels this, the need to suppress appetite, both in her romantic longings, as well as, you know, in a literal sense of starving herself. And so that's why that history of anorexia exists in the book and in this character's backstory, along with the fact that so much of her impulse is to sort of erase herself and to self negate because of the shame and internalized homophobia that she is living with. And so, you know, she has, you you mentioned that the narrator has no name, which is an, that's an intentional decision to have her sort of exist less on the page. And there are some relationships in which she doesn't even have any dialogue we never hear her speak. And so an eating disorder like anorexia is also a way to kind of erase, try and, you know, exist less to negate oneself. So that's why the eating disorder is part of her her backstory and her experience. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. And
2: I feel like it also dovetails with this whole
0: notion of deception, which you've already touched on, deceiving the mother, the whole secrecy behind having an eating disorder and that you have to keep it very, you know, you're hiding what's going on uh, sometimes in plain sight, but you're trying to hide the mental anguish you're going through (laughs) by an external manifestation of it. You had one quote in the book that said, keep secrets, keep us sick which I felt like it, it was presented within the context of like a group therapy type of situation. But I feel like that's something that that sort of pervaded the whole story. So t- talk to me about your relationship to Secrets and why you put it in the book and how you sort of feel they affect our lives as well.
2: Well, I, yeah. So I think that for me, uh, yeah, I'll just say like for me as a as, some, as a queer woman growing up in a rather unaccepting culture and family, I suppose – There is a, a lot of my experience has been hiding (laughs) and come, and, and my own personal journey has been from coming to a place of, or coming from a place of hiding to coming to a place of like existing louder and authentically, really. It's been a journey that's the end goal is authenticity. And I think that for this character, you know, so much of her behavioral patterns, which are really destructive and painful to watch, are motivated by this urge or this feeling she has that she has to, you know, hide who she is because of the fact that so much shame has been projected onto her. Some people would reject that. In her case, she internalizes it. And so, yeah, her behavior is motivated primarily by hiding, you know, by locating love in these unattainable women. I mean, she's sort of pouring herself into them without any, she's not, you're not, she's not really even involved in those relationships because they're asymmetrical. So her, her journey, and I guess she has a sort of epiphany when she hears that quote of like secrets keep us sick, is that like the way out of this, these destructive patterns is to be honest with not only the people around her,
0: a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy. And you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from. So you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's
2: com slash moms don't have time. But with herself, she can't even face herself. And that's a huge part of her pain and struggle. So yeah. did, did you
0: go through a, a situation similar to this and that you had to tell your family or that you kept it secret or like what, what happened? In, t- tell me about the, the, the most emotional parts of your life telling about your sexuality to your family
2: go ahead just (laughs) like to be honest without you know it's yeah of course it's been a journey but it's been it's my own journey of coming out followed a different trajectory than this character's journey as and even so with her family as well i think that what i can really relate to is that internalizing of there's you know homophobia around us everywhere and what is interesting to me i suppose and what i relate to uh, is the way that intern that homophobia can be internalized and it can lead to such sort of negative painful repercussions for a person so, you know, I understand that experience, but like the way that it manifests in her life is different than the way that it's manifested in mine, but, and the way that her family responds is different than the way that my family responded. However, it's not been easy for either of us, I think.
0: <laughs> sorry to hear that. And I'm yeah. also sorry to pry, but you
2: know. No, no, I think it's it's um, Okay. You know, I, couldn't, I of course, like I, I, I can't. I would never write a character who was. Why would it, it's anyway? It makes sense that I would share some of her experiences. As well. Did you feel?
0: How did you feel once you got all of this down on the page? Like, is this a topic that you had tried to write a lot about? I know you're a jur- You've been a journalist for a while, and you have an MFA and all the rest. Is this something you like kept going back to to try to crack? Or something like how did it feel to get this version of it on the page?
2: Well, I think fiction was a perfect vehicle for this kind of story for a number of reasons. I mean, one, I wanted to really challenge, I wanted to be subversive when it came to creating characters that were Arab and and specifically Palestinian and Muslim, and to challenge stereotypical depictions of Arabs and Muslims. And similarly, with I wanted to challenge stereotypical depictions of Of queer people as well. And to really just three-dimensionalize, which I felt I had more room to do in fiction. And I, you know, getting the story on the, it, yeah, I mean, there were so much, it was very hard to get, to to write the story and to communicate the precise nature of her struggle because of the fact that so much of it was coming from within and in many ways she was up against herself more than anyone else and so trying to really capture the psychological dynamics and I mean there was I just remember the moments of epiphany where I was when I would realize like ah yes this is this is exactly where her shame lies or this is exactly why her shame exists as it does this is exactly why she's destroying this this potential for a healthy relationship like understanding that was at once revelatory and really you know a breakthrough and also like really hard to depict in writing so or how hard to depict in a way that was artful and Yeah. yeah so so yes it was <laughs> exhilarating and difficult. <laughs>
0: and how, how long did the whole book take to write? And where did you write it? Like, did you outline? I know you had talked about these concentric circles, essentially. But did you outline any of it? At what point did you see the whole thing coming together?
2: The whole- so... So, yeah, so the book took six years to write, and I wrote a lot of it while I was in Iowa in my MFA program. And I, the way that the, you know, the process of writing it, because the book involves so many flashbacks and memories that are placed within the present text, the present day scenes, you know, as a way to suggest how one's present reality is impacted by one's past and you know collective cultural trauma as well as personal trauma because the book has that structure it was really hard to kind of put that all together and I, I spent a lot of time like I was actually just looking through my photo album on my phone and I found all these pictures of pages that I would I taped all the pages of the book to the wall and would move them around and figure out like what should go where and how what memories spoke to which scenes and how to like transition into them without being heavy handed. So that was a huge part of the process was figuring out the structure of the book, for sure. And the circles, I mean, like each circle had a sort of question attached and I would often find the question and then just write it on a note card and tape it above my desk and hope that it would like trickle into the story and like, just like close my eyes and allow it to infuse my brain and like just marinate in my head. So, I mean, it's weird. I'm (laughs) all these weird tactics (laughs) that it wasn't like a straight through process. Although there were big chunks that I wrote like in sort of like one or two months at a time, but yeah, a lot of this, it took a while to write this book because there were just so many parts, I think, that I wanted to fit together.
0: And what yeah. about the journey uh to getting it published?
2: Yeah, so that journey was also interesting. Um, I what was the journey? That was a journey as as <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was so one of the things that is I think i th- I was thinking about this yesterday, is that there is an expectation when you're writing a book and the character is let's say Arab or the character is Muslim or the character is queer and if character if readers, let's say editors or agents, they don't feel that that expectation is being met, they're uncomfortable with that or they want more like for example, I would hear a lot of feedback from you know agents or uh, saying things like they wanted more spices from the marketplace things that were really you know just particularly I guess emblematic of Middle East and I was not trying to do that because like I wanted the Palestinianness ness of the character to be just sort of woven into her idea to her and to the story and to not have it be this and I was trying to like challenge these traditional images in the in, anyway so so a lot of, uh, and, and similarly with creating a queer character, there is a host of expectations and like, you know, sort of limits as to what kind of queer characters you can write. And this queer character defies a lot of those expectations and transcends a lot of those limitations. So it was I when I found the agent that read the book as like a story, a, just a human story with a series of like, you know, love stories and one primary love story. That was like the right agent because she wasn't reading it in the context of like just reducing it to the those identity markers and what her what the expectations around them were, and so that was so important to me. I felt like I mean I felt like yeah she saw the book the way I wanted her to, or I would hope that a reader would, and it was the same with my editor. That was my criteria, what I hoped for, and I and finding that was part of the process. And in the end was that much more rewarding because like both my agent and editor saw the story first. And that was what I really had hoped for. It just goes to show that having the right agent and editor makes all the difference
0: because then you end up with a book as good and authentic and honest Mm -hmm. and open and believable as yours. Right. I mean, that's why I feel like that's why it seemed so much like memoir. The characters were so, real it felt like you were living somebody else's experience and you know it doesn't the it's like watching a play like the background the setting is just the the, it's just the setting it's not about you know the curtains and all the rest that's just where the drama takes place
2: so right precisely and that's exactly what I wanted and to really and to have those elements like be a part of the story but not like driving the story you know, so that was I because I wanted her to be real human. Because like, rather than being othered, which is what happens with members of marginalized communities when they are depicted as characters in literature, they're often you know othered in some way. Like I just didn't want that to happen. So. Yeah. Yeah, We can, we can buy a bunch of cookbooks with all the spices if we want to (laughs) experience those markets. I'm going to staple a spice back to the front of every book. I I love it. That's (laughs) perfect.
0: (laughs) So how do you feel with like your, all of this hard work and these years of time and attention poured into this manuscript that it's out in the world? Like the night before it came out, were you worried? And I know this is a weird time, and I know we talked about this at the beginning a little, yeah. but just the feeling of having to let it go and having to, you know, yeah. sort of let it set sail on its own out there. How do you feel about that?
2: I mean, so we, I keep using the word exhilarating, but it was, at, so then it was at once terrifying and exhilarating because, yeah, I mean, as you said, it was this book was like here, like for a long, long time. And then it would gradually be here, like with my uh, agent, then editor, then like you know, ARC goes. I, and so then, just like really letting it go off to college, like was a. I was nervous. I was scared. I felt emotional. I was excited to see. I was, you know, and and what's happened, I suppose, since then has just exceeded my imagination in terms of what what I could have, what to expect. I've never published a book before, so I didn't know what to expect. And just having people reach out and say, you know, that the book meant something to them and, and, and what, and specifically telling me the ways that it did was everything I could have hoped for. I mean, like that's the best part, you know? And yeah, I mean, (laughs) I think that so much of, I think the really, the beautiful part about books is as a writer is that process of writing the book I think and this period now when it's in the world I guess is is also beautiful and sort of a a beautiful payoff but at the same time like I feel as though my connection to the book hasn't broken like it's still I was afraid right by like sending it off that's what I'm trying to get at like that by sending it off I would just sort of like lose something that was so close to my heart but no I feel like by sharing it and by connecting with readers it's become that much more like close and in a different way and so I just really I don't know I've enjoyed it I think yeah but it's like here.
0: it's like one of those you know those paddles you use as a kid where like the ball was connected by a string oh yeah you, you would hit the ball like I feel like okay. you just hit the ball out and now it's like coming back to you because you're bringing exactly.
2: with it, like, all these, um... That's the perfect metaphor right that's exactly what it is so so, so yeah, I'm coming back. <laughs> so,
0: so, have you been writing since this book has sort of been shipped and sealed? Have you worked on something else, or, yeah. or did you work in quarantine on on another totally. project, or have you been like, "That's enough for now"?
2: No, okay. there's never enough. It's <laughs> never enough. You think it's gonna be enough? You're like, okay, but it's never enough for some reason. I guess it's, I don't know. It just yeah. So, I've been working on other. I've been writing essays. Um, I've been writing another novel, which is very different than this novel, and centered. Yeah, it's very different. Uh, but the I've been writing a collection of essays as well. That you know, also similarly, can are the characters in the essays are bear a lot of the same identity markers as this protagonist. But that's still something that's. It's not about. You know, the essays have queerness as a sort of overarching theme, but they're about like they're human stories. And that's been my um, goal. And, you know, I find that I keep returning to love for some reason. And so I do write a lot of essays that explore love in different contexts. And, and yeah, so that's been, it's been really fun and very different than writing a novel, of course. But I do work on that second novel a little bit every day as well, because you have to keep, you can't. I'm afraid of losing momentum. I think that's one of my biggest fears is losing momentum. So, yeah, I always insist on going.
0: Good for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, might as well.
2: I've heard advice that just even
0: opening the manuscript every day can help. Even um, if you yeah. work on it, just, we we just think- keep getting back in there.
2: Sometimes you just stare at it. I mean, honestly, and that's part of the process and that's, you have to be easy on yourself. And also we're going through some really challenging times and there's so much happening in the world. And like, yeah, it's hard to, you can't block all of that out and you don't want to. And so sometimes you're just like focusing on all of that instead and that's okay.
0: (laughs) I do feel sometimes the more, the world feels unstable in and of itself with everything changing from what where you're allowed to go from one day to the next and different rules and different up. I mean, it's just like insane. So clinging to love like you're doing in your essays is sort of the most fundamental place you could possibly write from right now because that's really what binds us as humans. It makes us different from everyone. It's like that it's feeling of connection when we can't be with people. It's it's so central to everything. So
2: I mean I you said like, I don't know why I did, but it's great that you're writing about love. No, I think it's true. And I think that in these last few months, if anything has come forward, it's love, you know? I mean, truly, like just the way that people reconnect, the way that I watch people outside interacting with each other, the generosity, the camaraderie, the community like so if anything, like that's just been one of the most beautiful aspects, I think, of all that's been happening. So so yeah. Why not think about love? Why not think about
0: love? <laughs> um, do you have any
2: advice for aspiring authors? Yes, I do. So I teach writing, actually. I've been teaching writing for nine years and I have lots of advice, but I'll limit it to uh, first of all, read, right? I mean, obviously, reading is, I guess, the best instruction for writing. I, I found it to be so. And I think that really two things. One, is to exercise that muscle as often as you can and to make it like a routine where it's like every every morning if you have like even if you only have 15 minutes to to try and do a few reps right um or if it's once a week but just really stick to a sort of routine where it becomes a part of your life because so much of writing and and becoming an author and is writing right like that's really the only training there is for it besides reading or the best training that there is for it and I think another thing that's really useful is to find community as a writer and to find places that help forge a sense of community around books and literature like the Center for fiction right or to find a writing group um, or to find you know fellow a reading group like all of because writing is such a alien it can be a lonely process of course with many hurdles having support is so from others it's just so important um because like I think persistence is like 60 or I don't want to put a <laughs> percentage number on how much a percent it is of the process but persisting is a huge part of like writing and having community helps with persisting so yeah Very true. Yeah.
0: Um, and I knew you taught writing. You taught. I didn't even know that the New York Times had like a writing school or whatever oh, yeah. until I saw that you taught there. I was like, how great is that? <laughs> I do indeed.
2: Yeah, I know. A lot of people don't know that they have a school because it's. I think a relatively new thing, but it's fun. Excellent. Well, that was it. <laughs> thank you so much. Really, thank you so much. That was fun. That was so fun, and for everything, it's been lovely. So, yeah. And Melanie, thank you for hosting this. Yes. and Thank you to the Center for Fiction. So, yeah.
0: Thanks a lot. Thanks to today's sponsor, Alley Oop, A-L-L-E-Y-O-O-P. Check it out at the App Store and start bonding with dads and daughters right away for free with code BOOKMOM, B-O-O-K capital B-M-O-M capital M, -M, if that makes sense. BOOKMOM. (laughs) Thanks for checking it out. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com.